everybody. It's good to be back. This is episode number five of Get the Let Out. We have a very special guest with us today. I'm here, yours truly, Joe Serino. And of course, Dr. Chuck Stead is here, but he has a very special guest with us today. And I'm going to ask Chuck to introduce him in just about a minute. As you know, Get the Let Out is all about real life situation that occurred up here in the Ramapo area of New York, New Jersey. And we're basically telling that story, but we're also reaching beyond that story to all the ramifications and the things that happen when we're not good stewards of our planet. And that's why I'm kind of excited about the guest that we have here today. Chuck, why don't you give him a little bit of an introduction? Yeah. Hi. Thank you, Joe. So my friend, Chief Vincent Mann, who's the chief of the Turtle Clan of the Ramapo Munsi Lunape Nation, He's with us today, and uh, after I finish the first reading, he'll be engaged with Joe and I in the discussion to follow. We're going to do this for a couple of episodes. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is episode five of Get the Let Out. Thank you, Joe. Episode five, chapter three, The Ramapos, part one. At the Sacred Heart Church in Suffern, New York, receiving of the First Holy Communion is preceded by one's First Holy Confession. In the Dominican order, children confess and receive their communion in second grade, roughly uh, age seven. Standing online, waiting for our turn for our first venture into the confessional booth, where we offer up our digressions and trespasses to a priest behind a plastic screen, all of us were reminded that we were about to further our commitment to a rich and penitent life. The boy behind me was also from my village. He whispered that he would like to go before me. He seemed impatient. I was only too happy to let him go because, well, I was still debating as to which sins I would offer up to the man behind the screen. I let Timothy Suffren step in front of me, and off he went. A short while later, emerging from the booth and down the aisle to the kneeler rail, where we would recite our penance. And I soon joined him to say, My Our Fathers, as he was whispering his. And then I noticed his prayers were, well, more exotic than mine. They included references to Father, Son, and Mother Earth. When our prayers were over, Sister Frederick took us outside to the playground. Now she was none too pleased with Timothy, whose time at the kneeler was the longest of any of us. It seemed his penance was the greatest, meaning his sins must have been the worst. But in the playground, I learned the reason for his lengthy penance was also the source of his exotic prayers. His Indian grandfather insisted that for every Christian prayer he recite two native prayers. Hmm. At age seven, I discovered there were natives among us. The Ramapo Lenape Nation has had a history of denial on the part of white academic society, from the Bureau of Indian Affairs to regional historians and to folklorists. Dr. David Ostreicher, who penned his epilogue for Herbert C. Kraft's authoritative text, The Lenape, Delaware Indian Heritage, back in 2001, Ostreicher had noted, in the quest for cultural identity and recognition, the Ramapo Mountain people have come to claim their Lenape heritage. Ostreicher's work on the epilogue is highly commendable, with a great deal of authentic Delaware Lenape scholarship, referenced, of course, but not unlike many of the academic predecessors of him, he is gently dismissive of Aramapo heritage. After first acknowledging the presence of a community, 
some members of which have, as he put it, Amerindian physical characteristics, and a long history of isolation due to the prejudice and fear by the surrounding communities, he then relies on the work of David Cohen, a critic of Ramapo credibility. It was Cohen who, in his 1974 book, The Ramapo Mountain People, who declared that their ancestry was comprised of freed blacks and mulattoes, but offered little documentation of Amerindian background. Ostreicher notes that the emergence of Cohen's book incited resentment and anger among the Ramapo community. This, in fact, he believes, is what encouraged them to incorporate as the Ramapo Mountain Indians in 1978, form a tribal council then and a clan system, and bring in scholars who could help them renew their native culture. In fact, David Ostreicher was an academic who, in the early 1980s, was financed to teach Ramapo children traditional Lenape culture, culture he had learned from doing fieldwork among Oklahoma-Delaware Lenape. Another author of a local historian by the name of Julian Harris Solomon published his Indians of the Lower Hudson Region, the Munsee, in the early 1980s, right around the same time that Ostreicher was teaching Ramapo children of their heritage. Now, Solomon seems even more sympathetic to the community, although he too believed that their heritage was fragmented at best. Solomon references Frank Speck as the first trained anthropologist to study the community in the early years of the 20th century. Speck identified that the mountain people living in the Ramapo Hills closer to the Hudson River, essentially what is now Harriman State Park, were more white than those living across the Ramapo Valley in the western hills, whom he described as a mixture of white and black, as well as what he called full-blood Indians. Solomon's book offers a good early history of the Muncie, his years spent living in the Rockland County area along the Harriman State Park land offered him the opportunity for a close relationship with the Hill folks that Speck identified as having a more white strain. His comments on Ramapo people living in Hilburn in northern New Jersey were, in fact, few. He closes with observing that the Ramapos, having achieved state recognition in New Jersey, had now received some federal funds to pay for Native education. He then adds that it is the spirit of these people that has not yet vanished, implying that spirit is all that is left of them. Now, it was David Stephen Cohen's The Ramapo Mountain People that left its mark on the community. Cohen did his field work for the text in the late 1960s, that's an explosive time for white folklorists probing among non-white demographics. In Ramapo, Cohen found a place that seemed to be a pocket of forgotten history. His background was in genealogy and folklore. His focus on early Dutch and black genealogical strains is his strength, with some folklore sections offering excellent oral family stories. However, it is his mixing of history, both objective and subjective, with folklore, that presents the problem. The reaction to Cohen's book by the Ramapos was swift and furious. It resulted in the forming a traditional native structure in their body politic. That was the good that emerged from Cohen's thesis. The not-so-good seems to reside in both his analysis of what is known as the Jackson-White myth 
and in his interpretation of community dynamics. Cohen suffered the same delusional characteristic of many academics. He believed he was objective. He was not. Generally speaking, as Edward Lenick has indicated in his wonderful volume, Ramapo Mountain Indians, People, Places, and Cultural Traditions, Lenick says, most historians and anthropologists agree that they are descended from local Muncie-speaking Lenape Delaware Indians who fled to the mountains in the late 17th century to escape Dutch and English settlers. Now, in my boyhood, we understood that the hill people were a mix of black and Indian with Dutch, German, and Irish influence. We knew this community to be stubbornly independent and entirely suspicious of white academics. Any literature covering the last few hundred years or so was demeaning and racist, while early history was romantic and idealized. Clearly, white perspective has been to keep the indigenous thing in the past, and people like the Ramapo defiantly face institutionalized denial. For as Native historian Evan Pritchard has noted in his work, The Native New Yorkers, the continued defiance of this small band represents one of the most protracted and hotly debated real estate battles in U.S. history. Hmm. Whereas Pritchard may be overreaching with his sentiment of the national significance of a Ramapo land claim, he is correct in noting the recent significance of the role Ramapo now play in land issues. Since their highly public tussle with Ford in Ringwood, New Jersey, the Ramapo have galvanized themselves as a community to reckon with. They have taken a strong public position in opposition to a proposed expansion of the El Paso pipeline. This is also known as the Kinder Morgan pipeline. And are outspoken in their rejection of hydro-gas fracturing in the highlands. Locally, they have challenged municipal authorities and the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection as to the appropriate use of sacred land along the Ramapo River in Mawa, New Jersey. Yes, this small band continues to galvanize in response to the overpressing industrial commercial demands of the dominant society. But again, as can be studied in the legal case that was made against Ford at Ringwood, it is the mechanization of a legal apparatus designed by a dominant mentality that continues to bear down on the community. So this begs the question, how do a people so long dominated, essentially a conquered people, retain their heritage, how to recover? Getting back to my early boyhood, Timothy invited me to meet his grandfather, his native elder. So I went to his folks' house, and there on the front stoop, sitting in the shade, was an old man who looked somewhat like an Indian, strong, chiseled features, stoic presence. I remember wondering where he might be keeping his feathers. I was introduced to him, and he sized me up, and, and then he told me that I looked like a stead. Hmm. I asked him if he was an Indian. He told me that most of Hilburn was part Indian and that the white folks were reluctant to admit it. Timothy and I then went down to the park and we played Indians and Cowboys, a game that involved a lot of chasing and falling down with no winners, no conquerors. By the end of the school term, Timothy's folks took him out of Catholic school. They moved away and, and I lost contact with him. The only record I have of him is a kindergarten photograph. It's a group shot with us sitting on the floor. He and I clearly have the biggest heads in the class. 
and frankly, we both look native in the shop. We also look very happy, undisturbed by questions of ethnicity. In trying to tease out an answer to this question of holding on to one's identity despite the odds, I submit that it is the community of oppression that facilitates a people's ideological survival. Just as Timothy's grandfather strategized the native prayer balancing mechanism in the presence of Christian prayers, I believe it is the shared racist oppression, as well as the deep heartfelt connection to the land, that keeps the native spirit alive in these people. In part, their dismissal by academics such as Cohen and Ostracker seems to have had a unifying impact upon the community, just as the marginalization historically has contributed to their preservation. My first impression just as somebody who is learning more about this now, thanks to these podcasts, is what a, what a wonderful thing the young boy, Timothy's grandfather, did for him in asking him to say two prayers that are native to his background for every one prayer that was, was said. In a way, he was saying, okay, look, we'll live with these people and we'll accept them but we're not going to jettison or leave behind our heritage, uh, which is, is a beautiful thing, an important thing. But then I started to think, what a damn shame that, that he had to even do that. You know, like, what, why, why did he have to make that, that deal? You know, Chief, how do you feel about that? I mean, in your estimation, what do you think that his grandfather was trying to do? And and how do you feel about it? I'm reminded that through contact, missionaries have always tried to convert us from spirituality to Christianity. And part of the of the Muncie speaking people's strategy for survival was to adopt religion, and at least on the outwardly uh, face of things. In fact, you know, the Muncie people are considered the praying Indians, right? Uh, in Canada, you have Moravian town. <laughs> um, and so, you know, re religion and spirituality uh, for us is not really far apart from each other. Um, the, the only difference really is in religion, you have physical people, right? And uh, on our side, it's more about being connected to all living things, how we, how we view the world as us being one part of, of that. In fact, you know, religion is beautiful. Uh, we notice that, you know, we burn sage in, in the Catholic Church, you know, when the uh, bishop is walking down the aisle, right, and he's swinging that chalice and, and the smoke that comes from the incense. We look at Jesus on the cross. And we look at our Sundancers attached to that pole. It's not very far from who we are. We remember our original instructions. And I think that religion, you know, based off of those Ten Commandments, are something that shows how all religions around the world, whether it's deeply into spirituality, you know, or in some form of Christianity, uh, when you take away the stories, uh, what you see is that they are 
Well, I think it's incredibly admirable that I, I, I hear you reaching across the divide and, and finding the connections. And I think that's, that's a, a, a beautiful and admirable trait in, in a people to be able to do that because, you know, we don't see a whole lot of that today. And I worry, too, about how does this affect your young people? How do they feel about the way things are, the way things are going? You know, I think that religion, the way that it came to our people, the way that it is in the 20th century, 21st century, it became something of dominance and power. And I think that there is much rebellion against the church now where our kids look to religion and they, they see something that is another piece of structure. Uh, thing that has been fabricated, and I think that our, our kids are beginning to more and more revert back to our way of being, just that sense of being in the woods with your relatives, right? The ones who are with us today and the one, ones whose uh, bones are in the soil. And I don't think that humans, in my personal opinion, were brought to this world three, four times to be a dominant culture. I think that that was not so much a thought of our people as was, you know, European, where we had to start taking and putting walls up. A society that's pretty young under, the, under this flag. What happened to us and our ancestors really became a separation of communities to conquer and divide, right? Pull and stretch us apart so that we wouldn't be them formidable force and what we see today is that you know from our perspective is that there's 300 plus million americans living in this country now and most of them are living a life of i me and mine where we still maintain that we ours and us if society you know as a whole around the world is to survive we really need to revert back to those old ways. And it's not that our ways were a domineering way. It was just that it was all inclusive. You know, so I think that our children are, are reverting back to you know that natural way of, of existing. Chief Man, while we're introducing you, I was going to ask you if you could talk a little bit about Three Sisters Farm. Sure. Muncie Three Sisters Medicinal Farm is located in Andover, New Jersey. Michaeline and I created the farm three, three and a half years ago. The purpose for starting the farm was for us to be able to grow highly medicinal vegetables so that we could then give those to the turtle plant, specifically turtle plant members who have either grown up or currently live and the federal Superfund site. Um, it's been our belief that food is medicine for uh, our total existence here. And so we finally, uh, as of last year, uh, we were able to produce about 6,000 pounds or so worth of vegetables that we then held free farmer's markets in our community in Ringwood. We didn't just open it up for Turtle Clan members, but for all tribal members who wanted to come there, be a part of the community, and get some healthy food. And so 
we have community members who are living there and you know while this is a big part of who they are and a big part of their culture to have gardens and things like this living in a federal superfund site it's just not some place that someone should be growing vegetables. So we're actually working with a partnership with NYU Environmental Medicine as well as University of New Mexico on a five-year project where we will have our people eating these highly medicinal value foods and their biometrics will be tested and to see if, if we have the ability to change the course lives there again what i keep hearing you have a kind of a complementary outlook on life everything i hear you saying and everything i've heard chuck say about your people is how can we connect how can we reach out not just with other people but with the land and the earth around us with the animals and the in the forest around us there's always a focus on it's not just us we're all in this together, and until we really connect, we're not going to prevail. There's so much that we can learn from your perspectives, from the way you're looking at this. The word Ilongo Mati, Ilongo Mati, that means if I see you on the side of the road, uh, you know, sick. If I have a big garden and you don't, right? We are the ones who always have, have been there. We look at society as our family that means the animals that means the wolves means the the grubs and the microorganisms that grow in the earth right you know how could we be so naive as human beings to to not understand you know how sacred the soil that our bottom of our souls touches every living thing that has ever existed on this planet returns to that soil everything my ancestors' bones, your ancestors' bones, their ancestors' bones, my ancestors' ancestors' bones, the, the, every tree, every bird, everything. And that's how sacred that soil is. You know? And, and when, we, when we drink water and we turn on our faucets, the water that falls from above that comes down and filters through absolutely every single thing that's ever lived on this planet. So how is that not sacred? How is that not worth protecting for all of us? Even climate change is not right in the wordage, right? It's human change. <laughs> Our Mother Earth, Coconut Key, will, will continually heal herself. And what we're really talking about when you hear the word climate change is what can we do to make it so that humans do not become one of the next millions of species? How do we prevent that from happening and the only way that we can do that is by acknowledging that we're all relatives that my actions can affect dr chuck stead my actions can affect you my actions can affect you know millions of people who unwittingly go about their daily lives and get sick 20 30 40 50 miles away and just assume that it's just something hereditary or something in their environment that's 50 miles away when in fact it very well could be that it's 50 miles away is what's causing this these uh, health ailments for them. We have to change the way that we as a society looks at our natural world and understand that, you know, we're just one part of it. 
that is who we are. If the Muncie-speaking people were such savages, those Dutch fur traders would have never have made it back. We didn't just decide that we were going to choose to pick our names out of a book. Those last names of Van, Van Dunk, De Groot, and De Vries, right, are Vanderdonk, De Vries, and De Groot. Those were affluent Dutch people who came from the Netherlands early on. Yeah. Traders. Yep. And that is how, because they married, those influential people married into the influential people, right, of the Ramapo Mountains. Yeah, we're we're gonna uh, wrap up this episode, Chief. This is so important, you know what you, what you're saying right now, and it's so meaningful. I'm so glad we're doing this because it gives representation to a voice that needs to be heard much more so than I, I see it being heard right now. So I think that's great, Chuck. I'm glad that you have this connection with this wisdom, and uh, that we'll be able to continue it. So. Without any further ado, uh, we're going to say goodbye for this week. But uh, please be back next week because because the chief will be here. Yep. And there's a lot to be learned. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks. <laughs>